Support for this podcast comes from the Iowa Bankers Association. Across Iowa, hundreds of neighborhood banks are providing jobs, supporting businesses, and strengthening our communities. Here, the life you build is backed by Iowa Banks. See what we mean at iowabankers.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Our year began with that school shooting in the central Iowa community of Perry. That tragedy on January 4th took the life of an 11-year-old boy, critically injured a high school principal who later died. Six other students and staff members were injured. The shooter died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Across the country in recent years, we've seen a spike in school shootings. How can we prevent these tragedies? And what's the best response to active shooter events when they do occur? That's the focus of today's program. Later, we'll hear from an Iowa school superintendent on the latest initiatives, both in terms of school security, but also in terms of paying more attention to student wellness. Toward the end of the hour, we'll hear from an expert on the psychology of school shooters. My first guest is Deputy Blake Michelson of the Guthrie County Sheriff's Office. He's been an active shooter instructor for the past two years, and I had a chance to speak with him earlier today. Deputy Michelson, thank you for joining us. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Deputy Michelson, before we talk about what you teach, tell us how you experienced the shooting in Perry, being in neighboring Guthrie County. Sure. So I was actually off that day, but dispatch called me and informed me what was happening, and they were requesting everyone to respond. So, um, you know, I got dressed and responded, and me and I think it was five or other five or six other deputies from the sheriff's office came on scene. We were, um, I think the 15th, 16th, 17th, something like that officers that showed up. So we weren't the first ones on scene, but we were like the second tier and we went in the school to make sure there was no other threat. And then we, you know, cleared some classrooms where, um, you know, anybody that was barricaded, they could get out safely and then just kind of held down the fort until the DCI arrived. Yeah. Knowing what we know now, about a month later, as we're having this conversation and uh, what you experienced there, what do you see as the actions that saved lives on that day? Well, I think it was, you know, to be to be completely open and honest, I think Perry PD, Dallas County, um, some of the very first people that were on scene there initially, I think they had a very good response time. I think, um, you know, logistically working with EMS, I think everything went as good as could be expected during a tragedy like that. And, um, you know, dispatch did very well for Dallas County, instructing officers where to go and and fire and EMS and um, the location of the shooter and things like that. Mm -hmm. You instruct teachers and staff. uh, How do you evaluate their reaction um, on that day? Um, I haven't spoken to any staff members from the Perry School District, but from my knowledge, um, they they did everything that is taught to us. They got out uh, a very fast, reasonable timeline. Um, you know, the the school was pretty much empty for the most part. If if anyone was available to get out, as as soon as could be expected within seconds. Yeah, uh, walk us through the parts of your training. The key messages you want to get across when you're instructing in how to react to an active shooting situation? 
Yeah, so during an attack, your mind's going to go through what's called a disaster response um, stimulus. And the first stage of that's denial. That's when you're in shock, you're in disbelief, you're justifying and rationalizing what you're hearing, what you're seeing. So anytime in America there's an active shooter, almost every time on the news they say, I thought it was fireworks. Well, we say it's fireworks because we're, we're justifying and rationalizing what we're experiencing because it's what makes us safe. It's what we're used to. When in reality, that's not the case. It takes an untrained person 30 seconds to be able to go through this stage. But if you train yourself, you can react in less, you know, up to three seconds. So obviously that time delay can be a significant, um, you know, role in, in keeping yourself safe. So you go from that, those to seconds of denial, hopefully very short, into, into what state of mind and what action? You go to deliberation. And that, too, can take up to 30 seconds for an untrained person. But if you train yourself, you can narrow it down to three seconds. So altogether, we have six seconds versus 60 seconds. And the deliberation part is your thoughts of action. What do I do? Where do I go? Do I run? Do I hide? Do I fight? Do I go out this window? Do I hide in this locker? Do I, you know, there's a number of things that go through your mind. So it's really important when you're going about your day, at least once an hour, you stop and say, okay, right here, right now, something were to happen, where would I go? What would I do? And how would I do it? So that way, if something were to happen, you're just reacting and you're not thinking. How does the proximity of the shooter shape your response? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a good question. The closer you are, obviously you're at a disadvantage if they have a firearm. However, if you can get close enough where you decide there's nowhere to go, there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide, close is control. And what I mean by that is if you're close enough, you can get in control of the shooter by taking their muzzle, controlling their hands, maybe wedging them into a corner, something like that. If you're farther away um, and you have no escape, then obviously you're, you're a target, and that's not something you want. Um, could you do this in, in together with others trying to subdue the shooter? Is that kind of communication possible in, in, in such a situation? I wouldn't necessarily say it's impossible, but you just have to see who, what your surroundings are. If, you know, somebody comes through the classroom door and you're next to the classroom door and you react and you realize, I can't run, there's nowhere to hide, I have to fight, and you, you would much rather fight when you're close because you're in control. If you were to, say, somehow wedge them into the corner or up against the wall or up against the door, maybe hopefully another student that's available sees that you know, they pick up on that, they they go to render aid and, and assist. And obviously, the more people against one, the better. Yeah. Should you try to communicate with the shooter? If so, how? If it's an active threat, I would never try to communicate with them because you're just leaving yourself vulnerable. Um, if they didn't have a firearm, if they didn't have a weapon, then by all means, you do what you think is necessary. But if they have a weapon, their intent isn't to talk. Their intent is to attack and cause harm. And so with that, I would advise not to. Later this hour, I'll have a conversation with an expert on the psychology of school shooters. In your training, um, do you, is it important to know about the mindset of this shooter, concern yourself with motivations, any of that things, any of those things? Yeah, yeah 100%. So typically, um, 
ever since the combine shooting, every active shooter has had essentially the eight categories that fit their personality. They've had a history of violence, exposure to violence, substance abuse issues, severe mental illness, uh, history of suicidal tendencies, stalking or harassing behavior. They've had poor family dynamics, and they're a very isolated individual. Um, So with that being said, also, they have an Avenger mindset. They feel like society has wronged them and that this is their opportunity to get back at society, whether it be bullying, they have a broken heart, they just recently got fired from a job, something like that, and that it's their way of getting even. Mm-hmm. What are the most common questions and concerns raised by those you train, the, the staff in schools? It varies. Um, one of the common questions I get is, do we pull a fire alarm? Now, in my opinion, and I can't speak for everybody, I think that's beneficial because it's going to cause chaos. It's going to cause, um, you know, a a situation that the shooter's not going to be trained for or expecting. So, for example, in Perry, I can tell you that the fire alarm was activated, and it creates a level of um, something that they're not trained for, whereas law enforcement is trained for that. You know, we've trained in loud environments specifically for this reason because people pull the fire alarms because it's a panic alarm essentially and it's to alert other people that there's a threat um you know i've heard other people say that's maybe not the best idea because the people will file out into the hallway knowing it's it's a fire alarm but regardless they're going to hear shots going off anyhow so i i would support it and i think it's a case-by-case scenario but that is one thing that teachers always ask is do they pull the fire alarm and I, I personally support it. Deputy Michelson, in your two years of training here um, on active shooting situations, how seriously do staff take your training? I, I have to imagine there are those who think, as most do, it'll never happen here. Do you have to fight that sort of denial? Nobody's, uh, well, first off, I think a heavy, heavy majority of people take it serious, but I don't think, I would think an overwhelming majority don't think it would ever happen. I think if there's any silver lining out of the Perry situation, that it opens folks' eyes to know that this just happened in our backyard, it could happen anywhere, and that they take it more serious, even if they didn't, you know, maybe they did in the beginning, but maybe now they're rationalizing and thinking that this actually could happen. They're not just going through the motions. Mm-hmm. After years of instruction here, in your view, what are the most effective changes we could make to have more effective response to active shooters in terms of school security and and so forth? Yeah, so a couple things. I think we should treat schools much like we would a sporting event or a concert event. Either we have a no-bag policy or we have a clear-bag policy. I think metal detectors are fine. Um, I also think that we need to get more individuals that are responsible with firearms in the school. Now, I don't want to take any credit for this. Uh, The Panora Police Chief, Matt Rising, he spoke to legislators about trying to get a bill passed where teachers or staff that are trusted, you know, become police reserves or reserves for the sheriff's office, and then they would legally be required, or not required, but they would legally be allowed to carry a firearm in the school and they could react to, you know, a, a life-changing uh, 
scenario like what happened in Perry and that way the response time is even faster and then the shooter walks into a situation like that knowing that there's going to be somebody there that's going to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you very much, Deputy Blake Michelson of the Guthrie County Sheriff's Office. Um, Deputy Michelson has been an active shooter instructor for the past two years. We appreciate your perspective and your service for helping to make our schools safer, Deputy. Yes, thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. We'll be back with more River to River from IPR News. Support for this podcast comes from the Iowa Bankers Association. Across Iowa, hundreds of neighborhood banks are providing jobs, supporting businesses, and strengthening our communities. Here, the life you build is backed by Iowa Banks. See what we mean at iowabankers.com. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Our focus today, school shootings. How can we better prevent these tragedies? And what's the best response to active shooter events when they do occur? Coming up later in this hour, a conversation I had with an expert on the psychology of school shooters. What are their various motivations and how does understanding their mindsets tell us um, something valuable about stemming school shootings? That's a conversation with Peter Langman coming up. He's a psychologist and director of research and school safety training with an organization called DriftNet. But first, a conversation I had earlier today with Justin Wagner. Uh, Justin Wagner is a superintendent at the Woodbine Community School District. He's been in that position since 2020. He's also deputy wing commander with the Iowa Air National Guard. Superintendent Wagner, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. I appreciate, uh, appreciate being on. Woodbine, a school district in western Iowa. You have a few hundred students, right, in your school district? Yes, 500 and 509 to be exact. Yeah, pre-K-12. All right. And I understand uh, about a year and a half ago, Iowa Homeland Security uh, came in and did a safety audit of your district. Tell us what you learned, what they did. Well, I tell you what, they, the first thing, probably the most important thing that came out of that audit was we could either have convenience or safety. Um, and where you have one, you have less of the other. And so that was really kind of an eye opener for us. You know, public schools are meant to be open. We want grandparents and aunts and uncles and, and loved ones and, and to, to feel open and, and welcomed within public schools. And that's in, in stark contrast to safety and security. And so it was just a fantastic experience for us to go through that audit. We appreciated the Iowa Department of Homeland Security coming out and doing that. And so what it did is it kind of set into motion. We, we felt like we were safe prior to the audit. And so what we wanted to move is just keep moving that needle from good to great in terms of the things that we could do to keep staff and students safe. So that audit was the jumping off point for us. 
to set up 23 steps uh, that we said, hey, we want to do even more in these areas to keep you know staff and students safe. And then um, and then what that also led into was a um, a general obligation bond that we took to the community and said, hey, this is really important to us. And the community said it's important to us too, and passed the bond uh, with a strong uh, strong support. And so then we set these 23 steps into motion based on that audit uh, that, like you said, happened about 18 months ago. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have don't have time to go in depth in the 23 steps, but give us an idea of what these steps are and and where you are in taking those steps. So we wanted we wanted the steps to focus on prevention as as well as reaction. And so each one of those steps is is set into play to try to buy us uh, time. So from a preventative measure, we want to do better on social, emotional, and behavioral health. We know we have a student assistance team both at the elementary and the secondary level that meets weekly, and we've added a mental health therapists into those uh, student assistance teams as, lo- as well as counselors, teachers, uh, and school-based interventionists uh, and principals. And so one of the first steps we took is, is embedding within our school district full-time uh, social-emotional behavioral health licensed therapists, you know, and so that has been a game-changer for us right, right from the prevention start. And so knowing what students' needs are and, and really reshaping and reframing what social-emotional behavioral health, especially in a small community, uh, was really important to us. We we think it's a sign of strength when when students want to talk about conflict resolution, want to talk about things that are going on in their lives, and and it helps us give them skills to and support them through hard times and through adversity. Uh, we always say we want to use pain for gain, right? To go through a hard thing in life, we want to try to as much as we possibly mm-hmm. can, you know, make make that a situation better. And so that started on the on the very far end, and then across the continuum, another piece that that we put into play. Um, was was we really wanted to buy time, and the best way to do that is is to is to try to lock down corridors, right? So within our building, we wanted to be able to have the instant ability to to cordon off um, uh, the school district into segments and chunks. And so there was a whole series of steps um, that included magnet doors and and a lot of in electronic infrastructure work that that went into place. And that's more of the in the middle. And then at, at the far end is kind of that reaction step. And one of those other steps that that was taken is uh, purchasing and contracting with a company called Zero Eyes um, that that uses artificial intelligence that will instantly notify law enforcement as well as school officials if a weapon is brandished on school grounds or outside of school grounds. Um, And so kind of that was kind of the continuum. And then obviously there's a bunch of steps taken in between that we're still working on. Some are completed, some will be completed uh, this summer. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's an interesting overview. So it ranges from security of the physical building, electronics. I want to ask you in just a moment about zero eyes there, but also the social emotional health of your your kids, uh, their emotional well being, and that would culminate in identifying uh, uh, children, youth who are in a bad situation mentally, and to intervene in a crisis before it gets anywhere near the point of that youth thinking about causing a tragedy as we saw in, in Perry, right? Yeah. So we want to be really thoughtful and there are no foolproof plans, right? So we, we know that there's this, this plan, there's no perfect way unless we really make a schools look like prisons, you know, we could put high fences up and barbed wire and armed guards and all those things. I think most people in their communities would, 
kind of look at that and say, oh, is there is there some intermediary steps we could take before that? So I just want to be really clear, this is not a foolproof plan. However, um, the, the point you made is, is really important. This isn't, when we reach out and provide social emotional behavioral health for students, this isn't just for students in crisis. This is for students in life. You know, when we went through COVID, I think we're still seeing the ripple effects of that. We're seeing the ripple effects of, uh, it's very difficult to go through adversity as a, as a seven-year-old if if your if your parents go through hard times and and if and if they if there's a divorce involved, or if they go through hard times and they have to move, you know those kinds of things and everything from small to little from small to big. So it's really important that we emphasize that working through those problems, or working through those issues, or talking about those problems is really important. Don't wait till they get to be a crisis, and that that prevention piece of that uh, it, it has been really important to us, and it's been our our therapists have been full. And so just kind of rewiring what therapist means, you know, in a small town, you know, yeah. kind of bootstraps people is what I'd call us, you know, hardworking, blue yeah. collar, you know, you know, good Americans all around us. And I think when we hit hard times, everybody processes that a little bit differently. And we just want, we just want kids and staff, you know, that's, it's been impacting our staff too, to know that we're there for them. And if you go through something hard, it doesn't mean you have to push it down. So. Right, right. And and, to, and it sounds like you're telling me, Superintendent, get rid of those taboos about talking about uh, life's difficulties. If you're a student, break down those taboos so that, you know, as you said, go, going to see a therapist to, to talk to someone about that is not a bad thing. It's a very good thing to share that with whomever may be helpful there. And our students then also, you know, we hear about bullying in some of these instances, um, um, are, are, are students being instructed to just pay attention and to show more care towards students they may or may not know um, have, are having, um, you know, real difficulties, whether it be at home or, or otherwise? Yeah, we, we, a key piece for, for these steps, too, was getting a therapeutic classroom grant uh, from the state, and that allowed us to put in what we call the tiger room. So the tiger room allows students to de-escalate or just come in and talk. If I walked up there right now, there'd be three or four or 10 students sitting in there talking to our school-based interventionists about things that happened last night at the game or just how their life is going. We believe the most important thing we can do from a safety perspective is create relationships, right? So it's relational and transactional. We, we want to create relationships with kids so they're comfortable talking to us so we can help them in their times of need. And then transactional, we want to add value to their life. Like, hey, if you're struggling with something, Hey, here's something to think about. Here's something maybe to try different. Um, so, so that 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 preventative piece and kind of eliminating and reducing those those kind of taboo those 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 terminologies to be taboo is is really important to us and 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 making sure that they know we have people instantly available for them. You know, I, I think one of the things, one of the challenges on safety and security that schools deal with all the time is they they see we're really good at problem. Um, I, I, identifying a problem, but not great on problem solving it because there's there's fewer resources, there's less resources available, especially on social emotional behavioral health. And so what what we've been able to do is identify the, the, the situation or the issue that's arisen and then also have an immediate solution for it, which is really kind of a game changer for schools, uh, especially for small schools who face so many challenges. And so that, that, that therapeutic classroom grant that we were able to get that allows us to set up these, we call it our tiger room, that's a de-escalation room. It's important to note our discipline um, levels have gone down 167 percent. 
I checked the math twice. It's according to our conditions for learning and, and from the state level, that's really, that, that's powerful for us. We're seeing those things in the hallways. We still have our gym. Yeah. Uh, Superintendent Wagner, we're running out of time. We have about five minutes left. So let's do get into what you called Zero Eyes, this AI platform, uh, which I understand detects guns on your school campuses. How does it work? Yes, sir. Yes, it, yes it, it, it's, uh, they call it weapon brandishment. And so uh, if, if a weapon is brandished outside of school, off school grounds within our camera purviews or inside of school, uh, then there's instant notification of law enforcement. And so the really important point for us with Zero Eyes, there's software out there that will identify weapon brandishment. The, re- the reason we went with Zero Eyes is because what this does, once the artificial intelligence software identifies the weapon and it alerts, uh, um, uh, sends an alert on the system, it goes to a live human yeah. expert into what they call a Zero, Zero Eyes operation center. And so we really wanted that uh, live person um, kind of scrub on whether this was a, a accurate event. We didn't want false positives, if that makes sense. You know, there's enough, there's swatting things happening across the world and the country, and we wanted to eliminate false positives to to reduce, you know, the, the impact on, on students and staff if it was a false positive. So once that information goes instantly to the Zero Operations Center, then they call 911, and they're, we are instantly notified, our staff as well, and so, um, and we're just trying to buy time. We're trying to reduce that average seven-minute response yeah. time. Get get in that two-minute time frame, which is really the focus of trying to save lives. Well, I'm sure this um, AI is getting ever more sophisticated. But what comes to mind for me is what happens if a student has a brandishes a squirt gun on the out on the grounds? Uh, will it trigger that? Right. So it, it, it there's a potential that it will trigger that. And we talked through that when we did our on-site test. So they brought former Navy SEALs on site and actually tested uh, the software with our cameras at locations uh, throughout multiple locations throughout the building. And they said it will pick that up in certain occasions. And that's where that it goes to that human element to the zero operations center to go, OK, that's clearly a squirt gun or or that's clearly a, you know, um, not a not a, a brandished weapon and there's not a threat there. And so what they would do in those situations, mm-hmm. they would still contact us to say, hey, here's the picture. Here's what we saw. This is our determination. Uh, can you get eyes on it just to validate and make sure? And, and, and that's what we do. Yeah. Uh, you're a ways into these 23 steps uh, from prevention to the reaction of a security breach or uh, to a security breach or an event. I want to know, in closing, a little bit of how your students, uh, staff, teachers, how the community is experiencing these changes. You you said the bond issue was passed. You need funding for these changes. What are you hearing in these conversations Is are all on the same page. Of course, we want our our kids, our staff, our teachers to be completely safe, but the way to do it, I have a feeling, may be controversial. Is there controversy there? Well, I say people vote with their feet. So you can always hear this, that, or the other on on different topics, but when the geo bond passed, and it passed with one of the measures and one of the focuses being safety and security, and it passed with a very strong percent. And that that's a that's a good indicator for us. We have not heard anything negative here about about the proactive steps we're taking. Uh, and and I understand too. It can cause you know concern because some people might say, well, was there something wrong before? There was not. We we felt like we had a safe building and safe environment, and so we just have appreciated the support. You know, and and I think parents in general appreciate any proactive steps we schools can take because I think the really important thing for us as superintendent, these are the things that keep us up at night 
right? We think about a lot of things, but safety and security of our students and staff is always at the top of our mind as superintendents. And we just, we want to do anything that we can to help prevent, you know, these kinds of things. And we also know there's no foolproof plan. And so I, I think parents appreciate that. And, and our community certainly yeah. has appreciated that and appreciate their support. Um, Superintendent Wagner, did the tragedy in Perry change the thinking? Could you th- see or feel that it changed this thinking in your school district, give it more urgency? Our, the, our process started 18 months ago. And so, you know, we were, we were down, we were well down this path. And in fact, like I said, we we're kind of coming down the last three or four steps that need to be completed here this summer. Anytime there's a school shooting anywhere, it, it's, it's a tragedy. It's horrific. Uh, you're, you're, it just, it makes you, it makes you sick. Uh, and so our hearts and uh, minds, thoughts, prayers go out to Perry as, as they continue to go through what this kind of um, next steps will be for them. And anytime a school goes through that, I think it's it, the conversations happen. Here's the thing that's interesting in this day and age. Our kids were instantly, they were instantly in communication with or had knowledge of um, that, that, that tragedy in Perry in, in many cases before even adults were. And, and that, that will happen nationwide, whether it's just in Iowa or not. And so kids are, are aware of those things, and it's on their mind all the time. It causes anxiousness. It causes anxiety. We understand that. And, and that's something that, you know, these steps hopefully will start to get after in terms of communicating with them and trying to set their minds at ease, um, that we're at least trying to do everything we can to kind of um, keep them safe. Yeah. We have just a minute left, Superintendent. Uh, you've said some things that are, I, I just interpret as really hopeful. I've done a lot of conversations having to do with school shootings, mass shootings. Unfortunately, that's the day and age in which we live. But you've said some hopeful things. What do you see in the future? Uh, where do you hope your school district will be in regard to safety uh, uh, from shooters at this time next year or in the coming years? We're continuing to grow. I think anytime we implement, you know, as many steps as we have, we want to continue to refine them. We want to continue to test them. We want to continue to grow them. So I think not not kind of laying back and, and feeling satisfied is where I hope we are a year from now. And, and I think we just we want to hit the sweet spot where we talk about it and we, we run exercises and we run drills on it without creating unnecessary anxiety with students and staff in the community. There's just a sweet spot in there. Uh, and so that's what I hope a year from now we continue to try to exercise and kind of think through, you know, the scenarios. And, and, and to be honest with you, a year from now, I think one of our challenges is we want to continue to sustain some of our prevention efforts on the front end, you know, in terms of resourcing and funding those, those full-time therapists, which, which we have in place and, and have a plan for. But those are the things that are on my mind in terms of sustainability. So once we get good things, continuing to, to sustain them, even, you know, and even grow them in, into a better better space. Superintendent Justin Wagner of the, the Woodbine Community School District in Western Iowa. Superintendent Wagner, thank you so much for your perspective today. I appreciate, appreciate you uh, putting a spotlight on this and, and appreciate the time. Thank you. Coming up after a short break, a psychologist who's consulted with the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security about the motivation of attackers. That's when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Back in a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, we've been discussing how schools can better prevent, respond to, and prepare for active shooter events. Let's dig now more into the psychology of school shooters. Peter Langman is a psychologist who's consulted with the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security about the motivations of attackers. He's the author of three books on the subject. His latest, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike, came out in 2021. Currently, he's the director of research and school safety training at DriftNet. I spoke with Peter Langman yesterday. Peter, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. Start off by telling us a little bit more about your background and expertise. Well, I became interested in this topic way back in 1999. I was working in a psychiatric facility for children and adolescents when the attack at Columbine High School happened. And that was on April 20th, 1999. Just 10 days later, a potential school shooter was admitted to our facility and I was assigned the task of conducting a psychological evaluation on him. That was my introduction to this issue. After that client left the hospital, there was another potential school shooter admitted, and then another one. And over the years, all too often, I was sitting face-to-face with a potential school shooter. So this became the focus of my career. And you're currently Director of Research and School Safety Training at DriftNet. Tell us quickly, what is DriftNet's mission and your role in that mission? Well, the mission is really to keep our communities safe. And they do that you know, with a number of uh, products and services related to school safety and security. And my role is to provide trainings to school personnel and to consult on the development and enhancement of their products and services so that we can do the best job we can at keeping everyone safe. You said your interest in this grew from Columbine. Uh, I'm looking at the latest statistics from the K through 12 school shooting database that tracks over the years. And when we get to 2020, well, between 2015 and 2020, a dramatic rise and then an even a more dramatic rise in school shootings uh, as of 2020 to the current day. To what do you attribute the mass number of, 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 of shootings we have as we speak today uh, on February 5th? 30 incidents just this year, 32 victims, according to this database. You know, it's hard to pin down a cause for this increase. It's probably due to a lot of different factors. One concern of mine is that the more this happens, the more it's likely to happen, that the phenomenon is essentially feeding on itself, whether that's through what's called copycat behavior or the contagion effect, or just by lowering the threshold. You know, there's such a taboo against taking someone's life But the more that taboo is broken, maybe as a society, we're seeing a weakening of that taboo and a lowering of the threshold that normally would keep people from committing such acts. You are an expert on the psychology of school shooters, also other perpetrators of mass violence. 
what should we know first and foremost about the mindset of those who commit such acts uh, so that they can be identified earlier um, uh, by professionals in mental health and education in law enforcement. In your training, what do you want to communicate first and foremost about the, the mindset of the perpetrators? Well, it's important to recognize that there's no such thing as the profile of a school shooter. There's a, a wide array of different types of people who commit these attacks. So for some people, it might be overwhelming rage that's driving their attack. They may feel like they've been victimized themselves repeatedly by society, and maybe they want to lash out either against specific people they feel have done them wrong, or maybe just lash out at the world in general. There may be people who are depressed and suicidal, but are also angry. So that becomes a combination of suicidal impulses and homicidal urges. Um, some may have the mindset that certain people just deserve to die. And we see that repeatedly. Um, in other cases, it may be more about a drive for fame. People feel like they're insignificant. They're a so-called nobody. They want to be a somebody. And they know that if they commit a mass attack, their name is going to be known across the country, maybe throughout the world. So we see a lot of fame-seeking behavior. So all these different kinds of factors can play into someone's mindset as they are preparing to commit such an attack. How many of the perpetrators have a diagnosable mental illness? That's difficult to answer because we would have to carefully define what we mean by mental illness. Some people use the term to mean any diagnosable condition that, that could include depression, anxiety, and so on, but other people may refer to sometimes what's called a major mental illness, such as schizophrenia. So it really depends on how we define that term. However we define it, though, these are people who are struggling psychologically, um, whether it's a combination of depression and anger or something more significant, such as a disorder that has psychotic symptoms, hallucinations, or delusions as part of it. These people are not doing well in life, and they could benefit from some kind of intervention. But I also need to emphasize that most people who are depressed or anxious or even having psychotic symptoms never become violent. So there may be that psychological component, but we have to be careful not to think that anyone who's struggling psychologically is at risk for violence because the vast majority are not. What about bullying? We know that's been part of schools and, and our upbringings for, for, for decades, <laughs> hundreds of years. Well, what is the role of bullying in creating a school shooter, typically? The role, the role of bullying as a factor is hard to pin down because as you commented, bullying has been a part of life for generations, if not throughout human history. The vast majority of people who are picked on, teased, harassed in some way at school, never commit an attack. Sometimes kids who do commit attacks have been picked on, but it may not be anything out of the ordinary. In a few cases, they have been brutally attacked and you know, physically assaulted and so on, but that's very rare. And even when kids have been picked on to some extent, 
they very rarely target anyone who was the bully. So it's hard to see how much that may have played into their attack. And even if they have been picked on, often there's many other problems. There could be problems at home. They may be physically abused in their own home or witness domestic violence between their parents. They may have romantic rejections. They may have been arrested in the community, suspended at school, uh, struggling academically. So bullying could be a contributing factor, certainly, but typically it's just one of many contributing factors. I'm sure another one on that list is social media. How does that factor in, in your studying? Well, social media certainly can be an incredible stressor for students today. And whether the bullying is happening at school or it's online harassment, that is something that you know anyone involved in violence prevention needs to be aware of. And monitoring someone's social media use could provide valuable information about their state of mind and what's happening in their lives. Mm-hmm. How do we better identify and stop potential shooters before they act um, through social media or other means? Well, the best way to prevent an attack at a school is through the process known as threat assessment and management. And all schools should have people trained on their staff who know how to investigate any safety concerns that are brought to their attention. That's the threat assessment piece. And for that to be effective, students and staff, as well as parents and community members in general, should be educated about the warning signs of a potential attack and know how to report that. And the best way to report that is through an anonymous tip line, whether it's a tip line run by the state or by the local school district. So to make threat assessment effective, you have to have people come forward and report their concerns. Those concerns need to be taken seriously, and the threat assessment team needs to investigate and determine if something may be a false alarm, maybe a misinterpretation of a comment, maybe a joke someone made, or if what is being reported is part of a serious threat of uh, potential violence. Peter, share some of the warning signs that are common. Warning signs of school shootings can be remarkably obvious. And the problem is when they're that obvious, they're often not taken seriously by their peers. Kids will sometimes announce to their friends that they're going to bring a gun to school and kill people. But often the students who do that are seen as just talking big, trying to impress people, or maybe just being mad, and no one thinks they would really do it. Another type of warning sign is when they warn their friends to stay away. They may say, don't come to school tomorrow. I'm going to do a shooting. Um, Or they might post comments on social media about their plans, whether explicit or more subtle comments that something really bad is going to happen. Sometimes they will try to get someone to join them in the attack. So they invite a peer to become a partner in the uh, violence. That's another opportunity for someone to say no and then pass that along. So most of the warning signs are things that are seen or heard by fellow students. And that's why it's so essential that they are educated about what to do when they encounter such warning signs. 
If you've just joined us, Peter Langman is with me for this portion of the program, a psychologist. He's had decades of experience uh, studying the motivations of attackers um, and um, has written several books about it, currently director of research and school safety training at DriftNet. Tell us more about the potential shooters you've spoken with, uh, why they considered committing a shooting, and and what stopped them. You know, the... Students had different motivations. It could have been revenge. It could have been a desire to make their mark in history, you know, make a name for themselves. What stopped them was people seeing the warning signs and getting them to a psychiatric facility where they could be kept safely while they were evaluated and then sent on for further treatment. So from experience, I know that when people report warning signs and they're taken seriously, this can save lives. And I also know from experience that none of the people I evaluated as potential school shooters ever went on to commit a school shooting or other type of mass attack. So that gives me hope that if these students are caught in time and receive the proper treatment, they can come out the other side of whatever crisis they're going through and re-enter society. Peter, solutions to gun violence, uh, a very divisive topic, uh, school shootings, uh, how we get to a better place and reduce our epidemic of, of, of gun violence and school shootings. What are your thoughts when you hear political debate about gun violence and the degree to which it matches up or doesn't match up with the psychology of shooters that you have studied uh, uh, so well? You know, when it comes to the policy issue, as it might relate to this topic, my focus is on where these juveniles are getting their firearms. And for the most part, they're using legally purchased and legally owned guns that belong to their parents or an older brother or grandparents. But these firearms are not secure within the home. So I think we need more of a public education campaign about firearm security in the home. And if there's any concern about a young person who may be struggling, that those guns should be removed because school shooters have proven themselves to be remarkably resourceful. And even when guns have been kept in locked gun cabinets or safes, they have been able to get their hands on them. So in that case, I think if there's someone who's presenting some concern about potential violence, the best thing to do is to temporarily remove those guns from the home. Mm -hmm. Again and again, I've heard as an explanation in the aftermath of a school shooting tragedy, evil. It's just evil. As a psychologist who's studied school shooters, how do you react to that level of analysis if it can be called analysis, when spoken by a politician after a tragedy. I certainly understand viewing such acts as acts of evil. As a psychologist, I try to go beyond that and understand what's causing these people to behave in a manner that certainly strikes us as evil. Um, The label of evil does not provide any enlightenment, it does not shed light on this phenomenon on how to stop it. So that's what I've been 
dedicating my career to trying to go beyond that and shed some light on what's causing this behavior. And finally, to conclude and perhaps summarize some of the points that you've mentioned, tell us, what can we do better to make the biggest strides in preventing school shootings right now and that that are politically, also politically feasible actions we can take in school districts and states across the country, do you believe? I think every school district or every state needs to have an anonymous tip line for people to report safety concerns. Students, staff, and families need to be educated about the existence of these tip lines and when it's appropriate to use them. All schools should have threat assessment teams trained and ready to respond to any safety concerns that are brought to their attention. And in my my latest book, Warning Signs, the ongoing theme is we're all on duty. That whether or not we work in schools or law enforcement, school shootings have been stopped by all kinds of people in the community simply because they saw something or heard something that struck them as concerning and they made a phone call. They took action. They reached out to the appropriate people and stopped a massacre. So I think we all have a role to play in keeping our community safe. We're all on duty. Peter Langman, Director of Research and School Safety Training at DriftNet. Peter, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Today's program was produced by Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.